yesterday at the men's breakfast, we listened to a message by Louis Giglio on pursuing God. And he spoke there about how in all of us as human beings, there's a hole in our soul the size of God that only God can fill. And what a challenge it was to those of us who were there. We were few in number. I have to just state that publicly. So men, there's the rap. There's a lot of effort that went in there. We had great ham, thanks to Dave T. And, um, but the biggest thing was that message about that hole in us, that need in us, that spiritual emptiness that can only be filled by Christ. And so as we come to God's Word this morning, I'd really ask you to listen to what His Word has to say to you specifically. As someone prayed in the early prayer meeting this morning, one sermon's coming out of here, but 180 sermons are out there. If you allow the Lord Jesus Christ through His Spirit to bring His Word to your life and hear what He has to say to you this morning, whether you're a believer here or not today. We've been looking at the whole theme of submission and what that looks like in our practical lives. Quick plug for next week. Next week we're going to be looking at how does, what does submission look like in marriage? And I've called next week's sermon, Wedlock or Deadlock. And husbands, before you rub your hands together and think, that's it, the ladies are going to get it again next week. You come along, gents, and you need to hear what God's Word has to say about submission before Him, because it mainly affects you. So come, and ladies, bring your husband along next week if he thinks he's going to stay away. Bring him along, all right? Let's see what God's Word has to say to us. So the book of First Peter, the letter of First Peter, written to those early believers under persecution and telling them, how to live their lives. Chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. And we're going to be looking at verses 18 to 25 this morning. 18 to 25. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favour. If for the sake of conscience towards God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if, when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favour with God. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep. 
but now you have returned to the shepherd and the guardian of your souls. Many of you will know the social networking site Facebook, and I know it because I'm on there as well. We've even started a Wanganui's Baptist one over there so we can communicate. But you know, Facebook has its advantages and its disadvantages. The advantage is you can meet up with a lot of people and even some long-lost friends. The disadvantage is that when you know a lot of friends, as you get to appoint them on your website, the challenge on your lifestyle increases. Because you have to say what you do. And what you've said on Facebook, you'd better have done. Because people know. There are a lot of people around and they see you. And you know, people have been caught out on Facebook by their employers because they say negative things about their employers and guess what? The employer sees it. says, excuse me, come here. We need to talk about something. Some people have even used Facebook after they've called in sick. This is how not to do it, okay? You call in sick and then you go to a movie, you go to the games, and then on Facebook you comment about it. Oh, I was at a great movie at 12 today. And your employer says, you were sick and so people have been caught out by that and they've been reprimanded and even lost their jobs you see how we live matters and we've been looking at that in the whole of chapter 2 what does holiness look like when it's applied to my life in practice that's what the apostles been bringing to our attention we are living in front of the world And we are living in front of the world so that we, through our lives, can glorify God. That is the purpose of our existence. Verse 17, we looked at honouring all people. Giving them the honour due to them because they've been made in God's image. And also at submitting to authorities that have been put over us. Why? Because God has put them there. God is the source of those authorities. And today as we come to this last section of chapter 2, we're looking at the servant-master relationship. And we're looking at the whole theme of what does it look like to be a submissive servant? Verses 18 to 21. And let's just remind ourselves when this was written. This letter was written during the Roman era of slaves and masters. And it didn't look like our employment situation today. Those days, if you were a slave and you misbehaved or you didn't do what your master said, you were whipped, you were tortured, and you were yes, you were even killed. It's a bit unusual to hear that. Did you hear about Marshall? He didn't listen to the boss and so they whipped him. We kind of don't get that today. Or, ah, he lost his life because he didn't do what the boss had asked him. He got killed yesterday. We don't kind of talk like that anymore. But that was the time when this letter was written. The Roman authorities had brought in these laws so that people could be killed, slaves could be killed for not listening. The employment world of today is so different, isn't it? What does our culture say through the unions? If you don't like it, strike. Try that in the Roman times. Make yourself heard. Use your voice. Stand up for your rights. We hear it all the time. We've just heard the teachers saying that as well. But you see, God's word is countercultural. We saw that last week. It is opposite to the culture of today. 
Because God's word, when, it come, when it's about the employer-employee relationship, says you need to respectfully submit to your employer. Why? Well, because we are submitted to God first, as we saw last week. God is the one we submit to first. And because of that, we then submit to any authority He's put over us. And so as we look at today's relationship with our employers, we see God's Word says we need to submit to those who are good and those who are are unreasonable. And that is where God's Word goes against the culture of today. Because, you know, it's easy to submit to your boss when he's good to you, isn't it? It's real easy. It's a natural thing to do. They're good to me, so I'll listen. But what about that one that is unreasonable to you? Or that you think is unreasonable? And sometimes when we think someone is unreasonable, it's only because they're not seeing things from our perspective, isn't it? What about that one that brings suffering across your way at the office? Unjust suffering, the Bible calls it. You've tried to change things through respectful means. You've gone to your boss. You've spoken about the situation. And yet this whole situation is carrying on. And you feel that you're suffering. Well, the Bible says this morning to us, from these verses, you and I as believers need to then bear it. Why? For the Lord's sake, says our text. We're looking at verses 18 to 20 first. We need to bear it for the Lord's sake. Why? Because this finds favor, says verse 19, before the Lord. And I can tell you now, if you are suffering unjustly and you bear it and you take it quietly, your employer will also note that. It will be a testimony to them. But the Bible gives us a bit of a warning here too. In verse 19 and 20. Especially verse 20. What credit is it if, there, if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure for it? You know, there's some people around in our lives that are hypocrites, even as believers. Why? Because they put on this martyr's face when they've done something wrong at the office and then they bear the punishment for it. Oh, now I'm suffering as a Christian. Well, no, you deserve it. You did wrong. And so you must bear the punishment. So bear it. Don't put on a martyr's face. What the Bible's talking about here is the one who does right before the employer and is still persecuted. Maybe you've been wrongly accused at the office. Something's happened and the blame has kind of fallen on you, but you know it wasn't you. Or maybe you've been singled out as a worker because you're a Christian. I know of people in this congregation where that happens to them. They're the only believer in their company and they are singled out for that. Or maybe your boss has singled you out because of your honest work habits. You are not going to do things in a dishonest way. Or maybe you've been ostracized by your colleagues because you are not joining in with the questionable work-related social activities that they get involved in. And so you get kind of pushed aside for that. You're persecuted. Well, the Bible says, honor God first and bear that. Why? Verse 21 gives us the answer. Because you have been called to it. That is the key to this passage, this whole passage this morning. We have been called to suffer for Christ. You know, sometimes when you, when you hear the gospel message go out, evangelists say, come to Christ and all your problems will be over. Well, you know, the Bible says the opposite. 
It says, come to Christ and suffering will start for you. That's what verse 21 is saying. You see, Jesus said himself, when you become a Christian, you can expect suffering. How do we know that? The Bible says it. Let's turn to it. John chapter 15. I'd like you to turn there with me, please. Let's see what Scripture says to us this morning. John chapter 15, verses 18 to 21. These are Jesus' own words to us about living the holy life in this world. He says, it's not a bed of roses. Expect suffering as a believer. John chapter 15, verses 18 to 21. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. You only need to see that in the world. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. Did the world keep God's word? No, they didn't. So, why should they keep what we say? By all these things, they, they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. So, expect suffering, says the Lord Jesus Christ. And then, in case you were thinking, I'm unique, I'm the only one suffering in the world. No, you're not. There are many people suffering in this world. You only need to read Voice of the Martyrs and see what is happening in the Middle East to believers in Christ who are literally losing their lives for the sake of the Gospel. You are not unique in your suffering in safe little New Zealand. And also, Christ went before you, so you're not unique. You see, verse 21 says to us that we need to follow Christ's example. What does our text say? It says, imitate me. We are to follow in his steps, says my version. We are to follow in his steps. Literally, we are to copy him. You know, as you would teach a child to write, that is what the text, the, this phrase means here. You put your hand on a child's hand and you teach them to write. While Christ says in the same way, follow me, copy me, imitate me. Why must we do that? Because now we come to the real reason why we need to submit. is because Christ did it before us. And that's our second point this morning. Christ is our perfect standard for suffering. And the rest of the sermon is just going to concentrate on the Lord Jesus Christ. What a fantastic theme. We can concentrate on Him. Verses 22 and 23. He is our perfect standard for suffering. You see... When we come up against adversity, when we come up against hard times, you have a gut reaction against it. In human terms, we say we have a reaction to it. It's a reaction to an, a situation. You come up against that false accusation at work. And what's your gut reaction to that? What's that first reciprocal action, that instinctive reaction that kicks up in you? I need to protect myself. I need to react to this. But you know, Christ doesn't call us to react. Christ calls us to act. There's a difference between a reaction and an action. A reaction is something happens to you and I do something back. But an action is a deliberate thought to do something. Do you get the difference? There's a major difference. 
The Lord Jesus Christ and God's Word doesn't call us to, to react. It calls us to act as believers. So when stuff gets done against us, we mustn't react. We must act to the situation. A deliberate action. Let's go and look at examples in Scripture of what men did and then how Christ acted. Firstly, men reviled Christ. They brought all kinds of accusations against Christ. What did Christ do? Did He say, yeah, but you men, you're just wicked people and you should have listened to me earlier? No, He didn't revile in return, says Scripture. Men insulted the Lord Jesus Christ. They brought abusive speech against Him. The Pharisees did it. They did it just before He was put on that cross, just before He was crucified. But what was Christ's action to that? Like a sheep before his shearers, says scripture, he was silent. You see, the world's advice is so contra to scripture. What does the world say? The world says, stand up for yourself. Let it out. It's therapy. Don't hold it in. Let out your anger. Let out that reaction. They've even got a program in England called Bashakar. You can get rid of your frustration by getting to a place and you pay and then you bash a car. Alright? That's the world's reaction to it. That's the worldly wisdom. Yeah, it's in England. Not here. Yet. The world also tells us suppress all that. Suppress it. Because if you don't, you give your opponent an edge, says the business world. But Christ was like a sheep to the slaughter. He was silent before accusers. What else did men do to Christ? Men made Christ suffer. They put a literal crown of thorns onto his head. They literally whipped him with those whips with bits of bone and metal in them. They literally nailed him to the cross. And he suffered without threatening. You know, the Bible says Christ could have brought, he is almighty God, isn't he? He could have brought a legion of angels against him. That's what the men said. Why don't you bring a legion of angels why don't you ask them to do something for you? And Christ himself could have done that because he's God. But he didn't. He didn't retaliate. He suffered willingly. We read about it this morning. We sang about it this morning. And then in the end, what did men do to him? They killed him on the cross. They killed our Lord Jesus Christ. And what was Christ's action to that? He allowed himself to be crucified. He allowed himself to die. He continued, says our text, entrusting himself to the Father, to him who judges justly, to his Father who would repay unbelievers. And if not on this earth, then one day when Christ comes again, they will be repaid. He continued entrusting himself to his Father who could bring forgiveness to all believers who are now trusting in him. And what were his last words before he gave, he gave up his life? He was in control. What were his last words? Into your hands I commit my spirit. You see, he entrusted himself to his Father. The only Son of God, God himself, entrusted himself to his Father. And the question comes to you and I this morning. When we come up in situations that come up against us, when we go through hard times... Scripture says to us this morning, do we continue to entrust ourselves to our Father? We have a Father too. The very same Father that the Lord Jesus Christ had and has. 
But you see, with us, the question is different. It is, yes, we understand it, but has it reached our hearts? And has that filtered through into the way we react and the way we act in life? Has, and I've said it so many times, has our head theology become practice theology? Has it actually hit home? Do you and I trust God and His sovereignty enough to place our whole situation plus ourselves in that situation to leave it to God and let Him work it out, but to honour Him in everything that we do, no matter how much our perceived rights may be affected. That doesn't matter. God's glory is what matters first. When we get to verses 22 and 23, I want you to do a little exercise now. Look at those verses, verses 22 and 23, and substitute your name in there now in your current situation and see how well you do. That's a little test for you quickly. Verses 22 and 23, you put it up there. Calvin has committed no sin. Well, I'm out there already. Neither has deceit been found in Calvin's mouth. When Calvin is reviled, he does not revile in return. Untrue in my case. When he suffers, he does not threaten. I know what it's like on the roads. But continues to entrust him or herself to him who judges justly. You see, we don't kind of measure up to that standard, do we? And that's the standard that we called up to. That is Christ's standard. He's our perfect standard. And God is calling us to that today. Thirdly, we see that Christ is our perfect substitute during our suffering. Verse 24 speaks about that. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. That little word substitute means this. It means I was supposed to die, but Christ died in my place. He substituted. He was a substitute for me. You see, he himself bore our sin on the cross. The hymn says, There was no other good enough to pay the price of sin. He only could unlock the gate of heaven and let us in. No one else could do that. Christ had to be the substitute and he was. Jesus said it this way. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He is our substitute. He himself bore our sins. He bore our sins. Literally, he took up our sins and he took our sins on himself and then he went up onto the cross and hung there with our sins and then he was punished for those sins. You know, in the Old Testament, the priest used to take their sacrifice and he used to walk up the steps to the altar bearing that sacrifice and then he used to place it on the altar and there it was burnt. And then the people were forgiven. Well, Christ did exactly the same in the New Testament. Christ took our sins upon Him, bodily, spiritually, and then He was nailed on the cross, and then He received the punishment for that sin which was on Him. He bore our sins on the cross. There are some today that are starting to teach, it wasn't so bad, because all our sin was placed on the cross. And God was angry at that tree. And so Christ only received part payment. 
No, that's a false teaching today. Christ received all payment for sin. For all sins, past, present and future. He bore it in His body on the tree, says our text. Those wounds He suffered were real wounds. They weren't just make-believe wounds. They weren't just figurative wounds. They were real wounds. Those stripes He had from those whips cut into His body, literally, they were real. That spiritual separation He experienced, the first time ever that Christ has experienced as God to God, spiritual separation from His Father when He said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It wasn't a question. He was making a statement there. He was spiritually separated at that moment. That was real. He bore our sins in His body on the tree. That was God's wrath poured out on Him. Why? What was the purpose of Christ's suffering? And here it touches us this morning. There are two ways that it touches us in why did Christ die? Why did He suffer on your and my behalf? So that we might die to sin, says our text. So that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Now there are two things that have to happen there. There's dying to sin and living to righteousness. You see that dying to sin was a once for all dying to sin. Who did that? The Lord Jesus Christ did that. He died so that we would no longer have to pay for sin. When he said, it is finished, that victory cry meant all sin has now been paid for. It never has to be paid for again. It was done. But there's an implication there and an application for us. That also means that we have to die to sin. When? Daily. We need to daily die to sin. What does that look like? Turn with me again in Scripture, please. Scripture tells us how to live. Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. We've looked at this passage so many times when looking at 1 Peter because it's so practical and it has so much parallel to it. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 22 to 24. Two lines in. This is what it looks like. This is what dying to sin daily looks like. Verse 22. Lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that, you have, and, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. So we need to put off something, and we need to put on something. We need to put off the old self, and we need to put on the renewed spirit that God gives to you and I, daily. And put on the new self, which is the likeness of God, has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Tell me, as you sit here, coming in here week in, week out, and I asked the same question to myself this morning, do we die to sin daily? Have we got that discipline in our lives so that we die to sin daily? Not just before you come to church on Sunday, you quickly think, oh, well, we're going to worship, so I better do something about it. No. Do we die to sin daily? The Bible says Christ died. He bore all your sins in His body on the tree so that you might die to sin. Are we going to have Christ die because we are living disobedient lives and so He died and so what? Because sometimes that's the attitude of our lives, isn't it? 
when it comes to the practical application of God's Word. But our text carries on. It says that you mustn't just put on the old self and be renewed, but we are to live to righteousness. You see, there's new purpose to the, the Christian life. There's something we need to do. We need to live to righteousness. John Piper said we need to live to God in everything that we do, even in your employer-employee relationship. We are to live to God in that. Turn with me to another passage, please. Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. Bit of a tour through the New Testament. Romans chapter 6, verses 8 to 14. This is the purpose of our living described to us, this living to righteousness. What does it look like? This is what it looks like. Now, if we have died with Christ, and if you're a believer here today, then you have died with Christ. We believe that we shall also live with Him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over Him. I didn't hear one Amen. I'll carry on reading. Verse 10. For the death that He died... He died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so. Now, that word, even so, that means, so you also. Alright? Consider yourselves to be dead to sin. But alive to God in Christ Jesus. Amen? Wow, I'll do that again. Consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's victorious stuff here. But, you got this? There's a therefore next. Therefore, this is where it gets hard, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts and do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. You see the principle when we even come in our employer-employee relationship? We are living to God because we now live under grace. And so we can live victorious lives even when things are against us. We can live victorious lives because Christ has died. Christ is our perfect substitute so that we can live to God. Fourthly and lastly, He is also our perfect shepherd through the suffering. And this is so much comfort. If you can... If you can understand these words, whenever you go through suffering again, look at these words again and get comfort from them. Christ is your perfect shepherd through your suffering. You are not alone, says verse 25 of our text. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. You see, there's two things described there. Christ place two roles there. He's a shepherd and a guardian of your souls. He's the watchful shepherd firstly. 
Our text says you were straying like sheep. You see, in our original state of sin, we were lost and without help, weren't we? Is anyone who could get to heaven by themselves? If there was, you've got a false gospel you're holding on to. Because Christ says we were lost without Him. We were dead in our sins, says Romans. And the stress here is not on the sheep, but on the action and condition of the sheep. What do these sheep look like when Christ found them? They were lost, dirty, hungry, dead. And Christ, the watchful shepherd, found them. You can think back to when Christ found you as a lost sinner. I was lost, but Jesus found me. Found the sheep that went astray. He raised His loving arms around me. He drew me back into His way. I was bruised, but Jesus healed me. Faint was I from many a fall. Sight was gone, and fears possessed me. But He freed me from them all. You see, what did Christ do? He found me, He raised me, He drew me, He healed me, and He freed me. Do those words find a chord in your soul? They do in mine. He gave us new life. He turned us around from where we were, 180 degrees going the other way. He gave us new life, new spiritual life. And then He made eternal provision for you and I so that we can live to God in our daily lives. I am the good shepherd, said the Lord Jesus Christ. I laid down my life for my sheep. He's the watchful shepherd. But there's the last role there he plays. He's also the guardian of your souls. As he's watching you, he is guarding you as well. He's watching over your actions as your protector. You see, in the Old Testament, David understood this so well. Psalm 139 verse 5. Listen to how David said it. You hem, that is you hedge as a protective hedge. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? You see, this isn't a negative boundary around us. When God is our guardian, it's not like the old song, don't fence me in. That's the negative side. Alright? God is hems us in as a hedge of protection around us. He's put up, in Africa, they put up thorn branches around the animals to protect them. It is a protective fence he's put up around us. Job understood that well. And wasn't Job a man who suffered much? So, he should be able to tell us how it works. Job said this. Listen to this, Job 23 verse 10. But he knows the way that I take. When he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. Verse 13. He is unchangeable. And who can turn him back? What he desires, that he does in my life. For he will complete what he appoints for me. He will complete what he's appointed for me. And if that means I must go through hard times for his sake, then that is what God has appointed for me. Who am I then to say, but Lord, I'm suffering, I'm such a martyr. No, He has appointed you to go through that. Do it to His glory. You see, we were straying like sheep, but now we have been turned back to the shepherd and to the overseer of our souls. Well, the question as we end this morning is, how then shall we live? 
How then should we live in the light of these truths? And I want to give you four words to hang on to. Only four, okay? And men, you can remember four too. It's not many to remember. How does this biblical truth affect my life? I don't want to, you and I to go out of here and, oh yep, that was another sermon, and I'm out of here and I've forgotten. Four words. Hang your thoughts on those. Imitate Christ in your attitudes and your reactions because we are human, alright? Here are the four words. First word, act. Act. Don't react. Act deliberately in situations. Where there's deceit against you, you are to be blameless. Where there are threats against you, maybe you should remain silent, like Christ, when necessary, and entrust yourself to your Father, who knows your situation and He is putting you through it. So act in those situations. Second word, no. No. And I'm talking about a heart no. No in your heart. What must you know? That Christ died as the perfect substitute in your place. There was no other who could die. Christ had to die in your place. And He did. You have now been freed from the grip of sin. And you can now live to God in any and every situation, even when enduring suffering or unjust punishment. No. Christ died for you. So act and know. Third word is trust. Trust your great shepherd. He has offered himself to return you to himself one day. And he said that, isn't he? I'm going to heaven to prepare a place for you. He's offering to come back and take us with him, isn't he? So we need to trust him in that. You and I, if we are believers, are prizes that were dearly bought. Do you think God is just going to leave you in this situation and abandon you? No. He's going to come back for you. He's going to look after you. You can trust Him in that situation. He knows what He has appointed for you. We need to just go through that with Him. He is there with us in that situation. We need to trust Him. Act no trust. Last word is show. Show Christ to the world. Your employers and your fellow employees who see you in that situation, they see the way you react, they see the way you act when pressure comes against you. But show Christ to the world through your life. Shine Christ to the world through your life. That's what this text is calling us to. It's a great challenge to us, you know. Martin Lloyd-Jones, and with these words I'm done, Martin Lloyd-Jones said it like this. Listen to these words. These were written in 1942, but the truth hasn't changed. Listen to it. If we desire to witness in the sense in which the apostles meant the word, then our lives must fully reflect our convictions. Our lives need to fully reflect our convictions. When the earliest Christians were scattered from Jerusalem, they astounded everyone by their holy joy and victorious faith. Think of that situation. They even rejoiced that they were accounted worthy to suffer. They did not falter or whimper in the face of impending martyrdom. They triumphed. But not only in the face of death were they victorious. They had learnt also the importance of maintaining good works, which our Lord himself had prophesied would lead men to glorify their Father. That's exactly what this passage is all about. 
men who had refused to listen to the proclamations of the message were overcome by true Christian charity and true Christian living as they saw it lived out in front of them. See how these Christians love one another, people were saying. It was a tribute to an undoubted fact. The fact is that we Christians, listen to this, we Christians should be outliving everyone as we follow closely our divine example and as we obey our Lord. We should be outliving people around us. How is that for a challenge this morning? An evangelical Christian should be outstanding in his sheer personal goodness and capacity for social and public righteousness. That's the standard we call to this morning. But we're not on our own, are we? The shepherd and guardian of our souls has sent us his helper. And he is living inside of us. He's filling that hole inside of us, that God-sized hole in our souls. And he's with us all the time as we live out this lifestyle that we are called to. Let's pray. Lord, our Heavenly Father, the world tells us to go one way and to react in one way. But your word calls us to the complete opposite. It calls us to godly wisdom, a godly way of life, a lifestyle that shouts out, we love the Lord Jesus Christ. He loves us. And he is living his life through me. Lord, thank you for your words. Thank you for the wisdom of it. And as we come through situations where we might be tempted with gut reactions to react to a situation, help us to always remember this word and may it come to our minds when we need it to act rather than react and to act deliberately so that your name will be glorified. Lord, I pray this for every individual who is here. I pray that those who are here this morning and do not know you will come to you as the only source of life. And these words cannot apply to them. But Lord, I pray that they would come to see that you are the only way, that you can also die for them, and that you can also bear their sins on you and give them peace and fill up that hole, that emptiness inside. Lord, you are such a great God. And thank you that we can serve you in our own humble ways. Keep us humble before the cross. Keep us faithful before the cross. Keep us obedient before you, we pray. Amen.